0: 14. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We'll save that for a moment, but I would like to share at least a couple of the central passages from this chapter. Beginning in verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Lord, speak to us from these living words. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. All right, we're going to spend the next few minutes unpacking a chapter and a half, not in great detail, just enough to get familiar with the story, and then together we're going to try and make sense of what this might have to do with us here. At this point, 3,500 years later. We're studying an ancient story. We're climbing into something that happened a long time ago, but we believe these words are living and powerful and that they have some messages and some, some teachings and some uh, truth for us today. So we're going to begin in chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. And I'm going to just stop at different points as we go to kind of connect you to a few thoughts here and there, but uh, for the most part, we're just going to make our way through the end of chapter 14. You know what I'll do beforehand? Let me, for, those of, for those of you that are not familiar with the story of Israel, let me do this. I, think, I don't want to make any assumptions. That's something I'm learning over the years is to never assume anything. If you want to turn over a few pages earlier in the book of Exodus, uh, you, can, you can turn and look at some of these headings. Okay, You can maybe look at chapter 4's heading where we left off last week. Moses is given powerful signs. He's got some pretty amazing tricks that he's been given, the whole leprosy, Shazam thing, where he puts his hand and he pulls it back out and it's gone, puts it back in, there it is, bing. You know, he has this staff that he throws on the ground, turns into a snake. That's the heading there in chapter 4. Moses is given powerful signs. Okay, Moses returns to Egypt is the next heading. Making bricks without straw. He asks for, for Pharaoh to let the people go, and Pharaoh says, not, not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to make life harder for you. So that's where uh, that's that heading from chapter 5. God promises chap, uh, deliverance in chapter 6, and then um, the plagues begin. Moses asks again with Aaron for the deliverance of God's people in chapter 7, and then the plagues begin. Water turned to blood, uh, then frogs. You can just kind of flip through the pages there. Gnats, flies, uh, the Egyptian livestock die. Not the Israelites' livestock, but the Egyptian livestock die. Boils, uh, hail, uh, a darkness, Where is he? Yeah, we haven't gotten to the darkness yet, the locusts, and then the darkness that's not in the, the land of Goshen where Israel, Israel was, but in the land of Egypt, a darkness that was so profound it could be felt, and then the final plague of the Passover, where the firstborn of Egypt perished in their beds at night. And God delivered his people from Egypt. So that's sort of where we're picking up in chapter 13. The people have left Egypt. They're moving their way toward the promised land. And we're picking up in chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. That last phrase is really probably better understood in an orderly fashion because they're not really battle-hardened. They're not really ready for battle in the sense where they're carrying swords and spears and ready to do battle. In fact, God is steering them away from the land of the Philistines because they're not ready for battle. Okay, But they leave in an orderly fashion. Let me show you what God has done here. Go ahead and put up that uh, little map for me, Ethan. I get to use my... Laser pointer today. Any chance I get to use this is cool because my kid. The kid in me enjoys doing this. I tried to find a map of this area. That was this. I got some weird techno, techno stuff going on up here that's making me nervous. Like if I move, I'm gonna. You want me to hand it to you? And are new batteries? Can we hit? Are they new? Okay. What should I do? Just don't move. Pray. <laughs> All right, let's, let's try, and I'll just be really still. and try that I, I'll, as still as I can. Okay, this is the least uh, busy map that I could find, okay, of this land. Uh, the nation of Israel is over here in Egypt. Uh, most folks place their beginning of their journey around Ramesses, which is near Goshen. They lived in the land of Goshen. They served as slaves for all of Egypt. But they probably, uh, uh, Ramesses is probably where they began their journey. And if you notice the uh, straight, most straight path over here to the promised land, which is over here, it would be going due east. This is cardinal direction of north. So you're going due east with a little bit of northeast direction there. But instead, God directs the nation of Israel south to a big water feature called the Red Sea. Okay. We'll leave that up here for now, maybe. And then, Ethan, you can just kill that and replace it with Scripture or just leave it for nothing for a while until we pick up later. Okay, so kind of visualize that. God led them not straight away, the shortest route to the promised land. He didn't go the easiest route, the most straightaway route. He went the longest. He had them go the longest way. So let's pick up in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people." I want to emphasize this again because I really want you to see this. God led them toward the Red Sea with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God led them there. They didn't just stumble upon this this redirection, this circuitous route. They were led there by the same God that led them out of Egypt. He led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Let's pick up in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. This is a Bible way of saying that Pharaoh at this point is going to go, these guys are a bunch of nincompoops.'" They're wandering all over the wilderness. They don't even know where they're going. Here they are. They've trapped themselves facing a water feature when all they had to do was keep going east. These guys are a bunch of nincompoops. Let's go get them. Okay, that's basically what's going to unfold in the next few verses, chapter 14, verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? What in the world were we thinking? We had free help. We didn't even have to pay them. We could ask them to do whatever we wanted to do, and there were tons of them. They were a prolific people, and they were our slaves. What were we thinking? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Okay, I want you to see this. God directs the people toward a water feature, Toward an obstacle, okay, and he's also working in Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to introduce you to a thought this morning that may be comfortable to you, you might be familiar with, but I, hopefully you'll see, you'll find some purchase even if you might have some doubts. that to see God as sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all things here. He directed not only his people back to this water feature on purpose, but he also hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of the Egyptians so that this collision would happen in the wilderness here, facing the Red Sea. God is sovereign over all things. You would have to work real hard to see anything other than a God who is orchestrating all the details in this event. Okay, we'll come back to that. Let's pick up in verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Okay, just a few verses earlier, they were marching defiantly. In Hebrew, that word means proudly, boldly. Look at us like a boss. We're marching out of here. Now, we don't know where we're going. We're kind of going all over the place. We kind of look like nincompoops out here. But man, we're going to look like a boss. We're going to look like we want to go there. And here they are just a few verses later. They're fearing greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness?' It's a sarcastic bunch, isn't it? I mean, don't you like a little sarcasm? Anybody else sarcastic in here? Kind of like, that kind of makes me smile. Sarcastic bunch. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. (laughs) Did you say that? I don't remember you saying that, but maybe you did. For it would, would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness they're bold and defiant in verse 8 but terrified in verse 10 and i just want to ask this thought can you blame them i mean really can you blame them if they had any idea of geography they must have thought what are we doing here now going a different direction over to the red sea Why in the world are we not heading due east and then a little bit northeast to head to this land that's been promised to our forefather Abraham? What in the world are we doing? It looks like you've put us in a trap here. This is a hopeless situation. Death is certain. I'm thinking, unless you're like um, Michael Phelps, you're looking at the Red Sea, you're going, man, I'm doomed. Okay, Unless you're like Spartacus, are like a a Navy SEAL in a movie, looking at the armies, you're like, I'm doomed. Okay, It looks like I'm officially dead. I'm just not dead yet, but I'm dead. This is over. So they get all sarcastic. What have you done, you dirty rat, leading us out of slavery? You should have left us alone. Better to serve Egypt than to die here in the wilderness. Remember when we said, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. I don't remember you saying that, but if you say you said that, okay, whatever. Let's pick up in verse 13 and see what happens. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, for which which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I want to ask forgiveness of parents in the room here real quick. I'm going to ask forgiveness for what I'm about to say, and I'm hoping that you can navigate your children through this little bit of insight into the Hebrew. Okay, first of all, Moses' response is faithful. Like, man, go Moses. Man, that, uh, you're like a shadow of the faithful leader that we have in Christ. So I appreciate you showing tremendous faith even though you have no idea what God's about to do. God has not told him, I'm about to part the Red Sea, so hang in there, buddy. He doesn't know any of that. But he tells them confidently, fear not, stand firm and see what the Lord will do. And this, this the next thing that he says is the closest it gets in Hebrew to him saying, and shut up. Where he says, be silent, in Hebrew, really what that, it's like an emphatic, like, and shut up. Quit whining like a bunch of babies, basically. I mean, if you want to kind of factor in the tone of that be silent, it's like seems so soft and gentle. Moses is hacked. He's hacked. These people are complaining like a bunch of big old babies. Man, I said just a minute ago, can you blame them? And I think most of us in the room could connect and parachute into that moment and go, yeah, it look like we're doomed. It looked like God orchestrated the whole thing. So no, I guess I can't blame them. But factor in what happened before that. The little headings that we just read... Have we already forgotten about the plagues? Have they already officially forgotten about the plagues? God's mighty judgment displayed? And they're whining and moaning and crying here and grumbling here like a bunch of big old babies. They just heard the cries of Egypt as they found their firstborn dead in their beds and their cribs and their stalls. They just ate the Passover. They're digesting the Passover meal where they heard the wind of the destroyer overhead passing over their blood-slathered homes. Man, how in the world could they forget so soon? Can you blame them? Absolutely we can blame them. They are apparently a seriously forgetful, grumbling, and complaining people. It's a good thing we're just talking about those ancient followers, right? Man, we've got to have some compassion on that bunch, though. But let's pan out and consider what they just had a front row seat observing God's power and God's might through the plagues. Let's pick up in verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. If you're like me, you're standing there on that seashore, you're facing the, the Red Sea, you've got the armies of Egypt bearing down behind you, and you've got two books in your library of possibilities. It's swim or fight. And this is a whole nother option. God shows that he owns creation, and he at a word can part the Red Sea, something no one would have even considered. And he makes the point to say, watch the Lord fight for you. Not with you, for you. You stand still and just watch. Let's pick up in verse twenty three. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. This threatening, ominous army of Egypt, frightening. You can imagine these chariots and all these commanders and all the soldiers ready for battle, seemingly so powerful with all their equipment, thrown into disarray and drowned by the might of the Lord. Let's pick up in verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Watch these next few words. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Israel saw, Israel feared, which is the beginning of all wisdom, fearing the Lord. And Israel believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And then if you look at the little heading right there in chapter 15, and Israel sang, boy you want to try and figure out some reason to to sing, this was an occasion for song. The whole chapter 15 is dedicated to song. Don't move. Nobody move. Okay, sorry. This is the centerpiece of the centerpiece of the story of the Exodus. This crossing the Red Sea is the middle of the middle. Talk about marrow and nougat. You talk about this stuff, this best part of the middle. This is the best part of the middle of the middle. This crossing of the Red Sea, this is a central, defining, people-mobilizing, people-creating, people-revealing event in the story of Israel. The men who took the gospel of Jesus all over the Roman Empire took this with them because it was built into them. I'm thankful this morning we get to build it into us. Okay, so here's some things that we can walk away with, some equipment that I believe this ancient story has for us. I'm going to try and move, and hopefully that won't start again. But I have to move. Okay. This story has some goods for us. Here's the first bit of goods. God sometimes, maybe often, often sends his people via the long way. God sometimes, maybe often, sends his people via the long way. We're not talking about the fact, this thought, that we have a different God than the God of this story. It's the same exact God. The same God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, Why on God's green earth would he operate differently with this people than he's operated with that people? God sends his people oftentimes via the long way. I want you to appreciate, I used my little laser pointer up there, I wanted you to see that map to recognize that this was a setup. This was what we should call, maybe so we can digest it better, a divine setup. This was an on-purpose redirect, a circuitous, circuitous route to lead them to a place where something would bless them. God not only did not make it easy for them in this route, He made it hard for them. Let's start right there. God sometimes, maybe often, sends his people the long, hard way. He sent them out of their way into a divine trap. I don't know what you do with a God that's not in control of all things. Can I just take a moment and address that? I'm just gonna just acknowledge. I, I'm gonna say this. I hope you can digest this. A God who's not in control and either ordaining or allowing all things is a pretty weak sauce God. He's an embarrassment, frankly. I would think that it's almost like that that teacher that's on recess duty that misses seeing the bully bully everyone else. I don't know what you do with a God that misses those things. God, I don't know where you were when Egypt took us into slavery. I don't know where you were when the armies came bearing down on us. I don't know where you were when all these hard things or difficult things happened to us. I don't know where you were when we just happened to redirect toward the Red Sea. I don't know what you do with a God that doesn't ordain those things as well. We have a God that gives us good things, but also a God that gives us good things in difficult circumstances. This is a beautiful illustration of that. Can you handle a God who ordains difficult circumstances in your life? Is the only God that you have is a God that just does all the dessert, (laughs) just gives you dessert. You only have room for a God that puts the wind to your back, fair winds and following seas, and have no room for a God that actually ordains A circuitous route with an occasion where the army's bearing down on you and you're looking at the sea that's uncrossable. I hope you are more comfortable with a God who ordains and allows all things. Not only ordaining and allowing them, but actually for those who trust him and love him, works those things for their good. And I hope that we together can enjoy a God who works all things together for good. Consider this passage from Acts chapter 2. Even if you struggle with this notion of this kind of God that ordains even difficult circumstances without authoring sin, but ordains and allows very difficult circumstances. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 2, men of Israel... Peter is preaching here the Sermon at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In this circumstance, our God... Allowed and ordained the death of his own son for our good. Man, I'm looking around the room at all the difficult redirects, at all the securitous routes losing twins, cancer, depression, marital struggle, money problems, health problems. I'm looking around the room. I can just name a that our God can work those things for your good, we've got to start right there and enjoy that He works the long way for your good. I'm going to leave that up there for a minute. He's not messing with you. He's not making things difficult for you just to make things difficult for you. I'm going to build some character in these jokers. He's up to something for your good, and I'm about to show you what that is, but we've got to start there. He redirects for your good. Now, the second thing is connected. God does the heavy lifting in those circumstances. God does the heavy lifting in those circumstances. What looked like a death trap was actually a glory trap. That's where the for your good part comes in. For it's for your good that you see the hand and the might and the glory and the power and the strength of the Lord in those circumstances where you're completely helpless. You're really onto something good when you have those occasions where you've got the army bearing down on you and you've got an ocean to your front that you can't cross. But God flexes. You're on to something really good when you get to see that play out. It's for your good He arranges hopeless circumstances. It's for your good, not your ease, that He ordains occasions when you face the sea you can't cross and an army to your back. It's for your good that you see the might and the power and the deliverance of the Lord. In this story, there's the reminder, God will fight for you. Not with you, for you. You just be still and watch. The only way you'll see these occasions where God flexes are in those circumstances when you're over your head, when you're completely at the end of yourself, when you're completely desperate, when you've got no other option, when you're trapped with no option in the catalog left. Those are the moments where you see him flex, where you have nowhere else to turn. This was a divine setup, a divine trap meant to build confidence in a God who delivers. God orchestrates, redirects, circuitous routes, oftentimes the hard way, for your good, and then God does the heavy lifting in those circumstances. And here's the third thing. God recreates his people through those waters. God recreates his people through those waters. If you were here, I think probably three weeks ago, Greg preached a sermon sort of introducing this series, the God and his people series, where he dealt with God's call to Abraham and his promise to him of building a people through him. And Greg presented this notion there of the the sea being a dark and formless place, an abyss. Let me develop that a little bit because you need to see the connection here because it's really pretty amazing. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit hovers over the waters as an ordered and fruitful world comes from a formless and void sea. It's from that dark and formless place that He speaks order and creation into existence. See, our ancient brothers and sisters had an understanding of the sea that it was a place of lostness, hopelessness, darkness a sinister place to go back into the sea would be a way where you experience a decreation an uncreation to move back into the formlessness and the void that might shed some light on some familiar passages micah chapter 7 verse 19 he will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot this this should man you should love this connection Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea, into the abyss, into the formlessness, the uncreation, like they don't even exist exist anymore. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6 Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, to be uncreated to re-enter formlessness and void. It adds new definition and identity. This Revelation chapter 13 where this beast emerges from the sea. Of course he does because that's the place of formlessness and void and darkness. I don't know of any place in our Bible that has this fanciful presentation of the the sea. We have some great books about the sea. I mean, it's been a long time since I read The Old Man and the Sea, but... I'm thinking of other books you may have read about the sea and these you know, and sailors. They have this fanciful recollection of the sea. Well, that's not in the Word. It's not in our Scripture. Our Scripture doesn't handle the sea that way. The way you see the Scripture handle the sea is in storms and in shipwrecks and in these hopeless, dark circumstances. It adds new meaning, too, where you see Jesus calling fishermen to follow him. Out of the void, out of the darkness, out of the sea, come follow me and I will give you life and form and shape and meaning and identity from that dark place of the sea. It's in the abyss that in this circumstance in Exodus chapter 14, he decreates permanently the armies of Egypt. They re enter the void. They re enter the abyss. Formlessness. They are decreated. It's permanent for them. But for the people of God, the very same waters of judgment for them become the waters of rebirth. They are recreated through the abyss, through that darkness of trial. He delivers us like He delivered them in Exodus 14 reborn. I named some of those circumstances around the room and I can couple those circumstances to occasions where you're going to be reborn if you haven't yet. You're going to experience new life on the other side of that trial because of the God who delivers. That's what he does to his people through the watery ordeal, through the abyss, through the darkness. He recreates and reforms and delivers It's in these difficult circumstances that we come out more dependent on him, right? It's through those dark trials, through the abyss, that we come out more trusting as we dry off, right? We come out more in awe of a God who flexed and got us through that circumstance. Somehow, when all hope was lost, It's in and through these kind of circumstances that our worship grows. I don't know how you can worship without them. I don't know how you can grow without them. We need them. In this story of the people of God in the Exodus, the plagues were like the labor pains. And then the delivery was through the broken water of the Red Sea. A new people was born because that's what God does with his people. Now, this last thing I want to share with you may be the most important. In fact, I know it's the most important. I'm taking a little pause, a little tea pause, because I want you to take a little pause and shift gears. I want you to consider with me what happens when the armies are bearing down on you, You're facing the ocean, and you end up drowning. What happens when the armies are bearing down on you, you're facing the ocean, and you end up crushed, clobbered? What happens when the sea to your front and the army to your back and you are ruined. This is, we're honest broking, brokering right here. A room full of honest people that connected to all these last three points. I bet everybody in here was stirred in some way. Yes, our God is deliverer. Yes, He's awesome. But then there's that marriage that didn't recover. There's that buddy that had a stroke that's now in the presence of the Lord all day on the Lord's day. Though we bathed him in prayer the same God of the Exodus, we cried out to, Lord, deliver this man. Return him to service. What do we do in those occasions when we are crushed? When cancer treatment doesn't work and we watch a young lad slowly dying while he's living with everything he's got. What happens when that marriage that you gave it, your everything fails? When your son and daughter walks away from the faith, though you poured the best and all you had into them. When you lose your job and you can't find another one, you're like, what, am I, what did I do? Where is God in those circumstances? Our God. The same God of the Exodus. sea to our front armies to our back and we're crushed what are we supposed to do with that well let me help you with this there's a danger of seeing the exodus in everything there's a danger to trying, try and apply the template of the exodus like it's this talisman having a bad hair day can you help me with the exodus of my bad hair day I say that jokingly. There's a lot more serious occasions. Can you help me with an exodus from this cancer? Can you help me with an exodus from this marital struggle? Can you help me with an exodus of this terrible job circumstance? I think my boss is Pharaoh. Can you help me? Right? Let me help you with this thought. Paul and Peter and James and John and other saints that we know of that were imprisoned over the New Testament, they never cried out for an exodus. Lord, give me an exodus from jail here. Ooh, I will praise you if you would just get me out of this jail. And you see them singing in jail. You see them singing and joyful and thanking the Lord in their trials in their sufferings you see him joyful in those circumstances man i see paul in all kinds of shipwrecks man let me just tell you a little lesson for you don't ever get on a boat with paul don't ever get in a car with greg fields either two things don't ever do one of those two things under any circumstances it's going to wreck But I don't see Paul saying, Lord, give me an exodus. Part the waters of this stormy sea for me. Applying the exodus to all of our problems is missing the point. It's not a talisman. And God is not a genie that we rub the lamp and bing, he comes out and fixes our current day problems. Does he often move in those circumstances? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are we wrong to call out to him? No. But if we apply this story of the Exodus to those circumstances, we're missing out on the real teaching here. This story of the Exodus, the story of the Red Sea, is meant to inform like shadow and substance an Exodus that we've already experienced, a sea that we have already crossed, a deliverance that we have already experienced. People of God, what has to condition us more than anything else is the realization that we've already crossed over. We have those little micro trials. Yes, and God shows up. Yes, and God's awesome. But ultimately, we've already crossed over. If you're united to Christ by faith, you've already been delivered from slavery to sin and death. You've already been delivered from the armies that are going to crush you, the armies of Satan. They've already been put to death for you. You've already been delivered over on, on dry ground. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Like now, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life already. It's a done deal. That's past tense. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, past tense, and transferred us, past tense, to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He's already delivered us. He's already healed our ultimate disease. He's already provided for our ultimate need. He's already done those things through our new and better Moses called Jesus Christ. He's already accomplished our exodus through the cross. So here's where I'm going with this. We look to that one singular exodus in our trials in our trials. It creates in us a disposition of the the delivered so that we can sing in jail. So we can sing with cancer. So we can sing in marital struggle. So we can sing in that job situation. So we can sing in the middle of the dark night. And then in that, we're actually being salty, bright, and aromatic where people are going, what's wrong with them? Who do they know? What do they know that I need to know? They're rising above their circumstances in their circumstances because they're holding to something that has happened already for them. It creates in us a disposition of the delivered in those trials which we will face, which we would be weird if we didn't ask to be delivered from. Of course, ask to be delivered, but then rest satisfied that you've already been delivered. Amen. Lord already so man can i ask us together to just shut up for real i'm glad the room laughed with me earlier when i hinted at the fact that god's people were kind of the same yesterday and today forever we're prone to grumbling prone to complaining prone to whining in the middle of those trials where we've already been delivered And instead, worship. Can we worship in those trials because of what has already been done for us? That's the message of the crossing of the Red Sea. Man, I love this. I want to pray and then I want to shift gears. Kind of, a little bit but I want to pray that God would really make this find a home in us, that he would work this into our understanding of faith, life, circumstances, trials, loss, sickness, depression, sadness, separation, divorce, difficulty of every kind, that he would inject this into that so that we would be a salty, bright, aromatic people in the mess. So we'd sing in jail. Lord, please work this in us. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for grumbling with the best of them, for complaining with the best of them, for getting so focused on these micro-trials that I completely miss what you've already done for us. Lord, please work in us a disposition of the delivered that we would be a people that look to you as having the might and the power and the strength and the goodness to deliver however things turn out. And to couple that with the joy and the scandal of you already having delivered us. Christ is our new and better Moses. We enjoy him right now and are thankful. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, Izzy, Levi, and Eden, y'all can make your way up here. These are the Kelso, three of the four Kelso kids. Um, As they're making their way up here, I want to connect this. I told you I was shifting gears a little bit, but I'm kind of not. I'm kind of not. What Izzy, Levi, and Eden are doing here in these next few minutes that the rest of us have done, if you're baptized into God's people, okay, we are surrendering to this practice and reality of God washing his people, of recreation through the abyss. Not only are we surrendering to it, we're celebrating it, that this is what he does. Okay? This baptism thing is so connected to everything we've considered this morning. It's an acknowledgement, and I've heard heard this from these three. It's an acknowledgment that we face a sea of an inability to cross over. A sea of good works. I can't swim across. Can't get across it. Not Michael Phelps. And we face an army that we can't defend ourselves from. We are stuck and helpless and hopeless, and we need a new and better Moses. And these three are calling the Jesus their new and better Moses. They're trusting Christ as their Savior to get them across the waters of ordeal. We, in baptism, join the Israelites in seeing our deliverance, in fearing the Lord, and in believing in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. In baptism, we join a great cloud of witnesses, and these three are going to join this cloud here in a moment, who also were delivered through the hopelessness or delivered from the hopelessness of slavery to sin and death, we join a great cloud of witnesses declaring Jesus is our new and better and living Moses who has already led us out of Egypt. So then we can walk in newness of life in the crisis, in the trial, and they'll face their versions. I've enjoyed spending time with the three of them. We met some this last week and talked about their faith and talked about how they love the Lord. And All three identify themselves as needing to trust Christ, as needing a Savior. Uh, I worked through that. and Let me just share this thought, too. Um, Our three were young when they were baptized. Um, There's no special certain age for baptism. I think uh, if you're able to articulate your faith, we're confessional Baptists. We believe that you should be able to articulate it, and the three of these have articulated their faith. Uh, could they write a, a sermon, I mean, a, a thesis for a, a, a theology class in seminary? No, I, I couldn't do that anymore. I, most of us can't. You don't have to be able to do that. The gospel is uh, very complicated, and people spend their lives writing on it, teaching it, trying to make sense of it, but it's also simple as well. It's like the book of John. I heard it said that it's so uh, deep that you can wade in it or you can swim in it, but it's so shallow that children can wade in it. No, it's actually the quote is elephants can swim in it and children can wade in it. So that's a nice way to put the gospel. And these children have waded in, man. They love the Lord. They love the Lord. And they recognize that they need a Savior. So today they are coming to join the saints. Some of those saints we might consider is uh, Noah. You guys are joining Noah in being delivered through, through the abyss. Okay? You're joining Jonah, even though he's kind of reluctant and all. He's still delivered through the watery ordeal. Right? Moses in his tiny little wee ark, he was delivered from the Nile. The nation of Israel was delivered through the Red Sea and delivered again through the Jordan, just in case they forgot. The disciples were delivered a number of times through storms on the Sea of Galilee. That's a stormy place, a really shallow sea and storm-prone. Um, Paul, again, don't get on a boat with him, but he was delivered through every shipwreck. <laughs> How in the world... So they're joining a host of witnesses, uh, cover to cover, that have been delivered through the, by the Lord through the watery ordeal. So Eden, you want to go first? Okay, go ahead and step in there. Make sure it's still warm. Yes, it's nice. Nice, okay. Eden, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. You go, go ahead and kneel down. Let's kneel so we can see you. Okay, all right, come over here this way a little bit. I'm going to ask two questions of you. Okay, do you have any hope of being saved without Jesus? Okay. Are you trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yeah. Eden, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There you go. Is this your towel? Yeah. Is that good enough? Okay. All right. Levi, you're up, big man. Levi. Do you have any hope of being saved without Christ? No. Are you trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes. All right. Well, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) All right, buddy. Good work. Izzy, climb in there. Izzy, Do you have any hope of being saved without Jesus? No. Are you trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. I want to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Thank you all. Man, you all try and stay on the mat so you don't slip down. Here's another towel. This is you all. Man, that's pretty cool. What a great way, fitting way to end this sermon. Uh, Go ahead and, if you would, grab your little supper kits. We're going to have our supper now, and I'm going to share another little story with you. It's brief, though. I don't want you all to be storied out this morning. Um, Just a very brief story is going to be our supper devotion. So if you need kits, there's some at the back, back here. This side, I think, is a bigger section, if you haven't grabbed that. There's some more over here, right behind Jerry and Mary Jane on the table there, kind of have your supper ready, and I'm going to share this little story. It's going to sound like it's a different story. It might be a different story, but we'll, we'll be the judge of that, okay? It's in Matthew chapter 14, not Exodus 14, but in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus has just fed the multitudes, okay? Everybody kind of got to get their supper ready so we can pay attention. It's, really, it's a really cool story. He just fed the multitude. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He made them. Sound like a setup. Sound like a divine setup, maybe. He made them go to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land. Okay, a boat full of fishermen is a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. And actually in the original Greek it says, I am. Man, what a tragic translation here. I'm not going to call it an error. I don't want you to distrust your translations, but it says is it is it I or it, it is I in my ESV. In the original Greek, it is yet another I am statement. It's a fitting place when he's high step in the high seas. When you say I am. Take heart. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, "Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water." And he said, "Come." So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. We can identify with Peter here. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. What a great God. The wind ceased. Another account says immediately they were on the other side. Just like, It probably didn't make that noise. But just a of on the other side. Just like that. Immediately the wind ceased, and look what they did next. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What a great little simple story. A boat full of fishermen, another divine setup. They're stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, this really shallow, storm-prone sea. They're losing, apparently, facing a headwind beaten by the waves but God has a plan for glory because that's what he does he's going to flex so the same God who parted the sea walks on the sea and says take heart I am and the wind ceased disciples of Christ now washed now delivered trusting him worshipped him People of God, we take this supper every single week, and what we do when we take this supper, we remember that he has already delivered us. And that was by one singular event, through the work of the cross. We remember his broken body and shed blood as the very thing that's already delivered us. So we take and enjoy this meal in faith. So let's take and eat in faith. Let's take and drink, enjoying deliverance in faith. Let me pray. God, we see you. God, we fear you. God, we believe in you, and we worship you, and we sing, Lord. We are so grateful, so thankful. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all stand, and let's sing.